Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to be here with you today on a very beautiful Sabbath. To begin the sermon, I'd like to read something. This was a humorous comment that was on the Internet some time ago. said a, a news photographer had his request to get a plane approved to take some pictures. So he called the local airport to charter a flight. He was told a twin-engine plane would be waiting for him at the airport. Arriving at the airport, he spotted a plane warming up right outside the hangar. So he jumped in with his bag, slammed the door shut, and said, Let's go! The pilot taxied out, swung the plane into the wind, and took off. Once in the air, the photographer instructed the pilot, he said, Fly over that valley over there, make some low passes so I can take some pictures of those fires on the hillsides. The pilot said, Why? 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 He said, Because I'm a photographer with the Cable News Bureau, and I need to get some close-up shots. The pilot was very quiet. And he finally said, uh, so what, what, what you're telling me is you're not my flight instructor? <laughs> you know, we have a lot of people trying to fly through life today without any flight instructor. We've got a lot of people trying to fly through life without filing any flight plans, without uh, uh, being given any solid advice as to how to fly. Sometimes we make bad choices. Sometimes we follow wrong values. Sometimes we listen to mistaken advice. And from time to time, we crash and burn because we didn't have good advice. We didn't have, listen to the flight instructor. We didn't follow the flight plan. What I'd like to do today in the sermon is talk about a flight plan, talk about a way to succeed in life. But I'd like to ask you a couple questions before we start. Would you like to succeed in life or would you like to fail? How many would like to succeed in life? How many would like to fail? No takers. <laughs> you know, we can succeed if we follow the flight plans, if we listen to the flight instructor, but we can fail if we don't. I'd like to ask you another question. What is your criteria for success? If you'd like to succeed in life, what is your criteria for success? What would you have to do in your mind to feel like you've succeeded in life? Think about it a little bit. I think many of us would like to have a, a nice job because we feel like we've succeeded then if we get a nice job. Have a nice home because people will notice that we've got a nice home and they'll feel like you've succeeded. Have a nice car. Have nice clothes. Have a reasonable amount of disposable income because uh, that would make us feel good and we'll feel like successes. If we have a disposable income, then we can do nice things, go nice places, eat nice restaurants, do nice things, enjoy life, and we'll feel successful. And because money talks, people will assume you got a nice house, a nice car. Uh, maybe you're an important person, and they want to spend time with you because you appear to be a success. 
you know, I've heard the saying, and you probably heard it, those that uh, end the game of life with the most things win the game. I've also heard it said that bigger boys need bigger toys. <laughs> These are the world's criteria for success. You know, bigger things, more things. Uh, and if we're not careful... These values can rub off on us where we think we have to have more of this, more of that, bigger this, bigger that, because this is the world's concept of success, tends to focus on how much you can get. You know, an individual who kind of personifies this approach is a gentleman by the name of Donald Trump. I'd never heard of Donald Trump until uh, I was asking Actually, a group of young people I was working with a number of years ago. I said, who do you really admire? Who is your hero? And they went around the room, and one individual said, Donald Trump. I'd never heard his name before. This was back in the 80s. But I've kind of watched this individual over the years. Uh, very interesting person. And again, I'm not here to evaluate him, just to merely talk about him a little bit. He's a wealthy real estate developer. <clears throat> In New York, uh, <clears throat> fairly well-educated, at least as far as he wanted to go, before he figured he could make more money by going to school. Uh, <clears throat> he's developed uh, some multi-million, probably multi-billion dollar developments, Trump Towers around the world and Trump Resorts around the world. Uh, he's starred in his own television show. He's a TV producer. He's got his star on the walk in Hollywood. Uh, he's got a certain amount of notoriety uh, and a certain amount of prestige. Uh, <clears throat> he's described as a very aggressive, very competitive individual. He's written a book. I don't want to use the exact title in here, but it's basically how to kick butt and succeed in life. <laughs> now, he uses more graphic words than I have used. But this is his approach. You know, you got to take it on the chin and you get out there and knock people around. And you can win. That's his key to success. Another individual that uh, somewhat older than Mr. Trump, but a man by the name of Andrew Carnegie, came to this country as a rather poor immigrant from Scotland. He worked very hard. I think his first job was a dollar an hour or maybe a dollar a day. But he worked very hard. The diligence that we heard about in the sermonette he used his brain. He used his mind. He, would, he could think. He could foresee things down the road. He saw where things were going. Uh, he invested his time and energy wisely, and he basically amassed a fortune. Built U.S. Steel and a number of other major companies. Some people said that he kind of hurt people in the process, but that was the time in which he lived. But before he died, Mr. Carnegie gave away his fortune. Gave away his fortune. Built thousands of free libraries in the UK, in America, Australia, other places around the country. Built parks, established a pension system for his employees. One of the stories I remember was when he grew up in a little town in Scotland, there was somebody who had a lot of money, had a big estate with a wall around it. Nobody could go in it. Later, he bought the state, the estate, opened the doors to the walls and let people go in and use it as a park. 
had a different set of values, a different set of values. He came from a different uh, era, uh, functioned in a different society. But I wonder, he was not an overly religious person, apparently. Uh, I think he was turned off by the secular arguments between different religious groups. Uh, but he must have absorbed some values growing up in Scotland and growing up in the United States at that time, that there is a better way. What is God's criteria for success? We've talked about the world's criteria for success, of getting a lot of stuff and knocking people out of the way. Uh, What is God's criteria for success? You might think about that for a little bit. What is God looking for in us if we hope to succeed? Turn, if you would, to a couple of scriptures. <clears throat> Begin in uh, Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2, the latter part of that. You know, I've talked with people that uh, <clears throat> primarily before coming into the church of God, that I heard them say, these were adults at that time, you know, I just I pray that God would show me what he wants me to do in life, that God would just guide me and show me where I should go and what I should do. And coming into the church of God, I was introduced to this scripture because God does show us what he wants of us. He does point us in a direction. In Isaiah 66, latter part of verse 2, it says, But on this one or on this person will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. This is what God is looking for in each of us. We kind of reach in our pocket and there's some change there maybe. We think, well, we're poor, so we qualify on that one. No, the word actually means humble, lowly, uh, depressed in the sense of you put a pin in a balloon and all the hot air goes out. That's what God is looking for in us. Someone that's humble, teachable. A contrite spirit means a broken spirit. You're not trying to do it your way. You're not trying and insisting on, well, it's got to be my way or the highway. The church doesn't come around on this thing. I'm out of here. We've got people leaving for those reasons today. church didn't agree with me, so I'm gone. That's a shame. Humble, a contrite spirit, a repentant spirit. I want to change. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to do things God's way. And then the last phrase here, that trembles at my word. We read the scriptures. We want to do it God's way. We don't want to argue with it. We just want to do it God's way. And this repeats a couple of other times. If we look in uh, Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. The same basic concept. What God is looking for, it's his criteria for success. This is the flight plan that God is giving us. This is our destination. This should be our goal in life. Hosea 6 and verse 6, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. We were in, uh, I think it was uh, Portugal a couple of years ago at Fatima, this big Catholic shrine. We got there just after an outside uh, service was over. 
And it was a big altar out there, and there were several people, I think they were basically men, on their knees, crawling on their knees around this altar. It was kind of a penance type of thing. They were punishing themselves. God's not interested in things like that. We also walked over to what we looked like a big barbecue. But you could buy little plastic, not plastic, but wax uh, figures of your stomach or your heart or your hand or whatever. And the idea was you were going to offer this as a sacrifice to God and pray that he would heal your hand or heal your heart or heal your stomach. So you buy these things. They were selling the wax images. So they're making money on that. And then you would put it on this barbecue and it would burn it up. This is how some people are convinced they have to live their life. God says, I'm not interested in sacrifices. I'm interested in mercy. That we become merciful individuals. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. A knowledge of God. God wants us to do it his way. Finally, let's go to uh, Micah. Micah chapter 6. And verse 8. Here are three places where God basically tells us what he's looking for. This is what God's criteria for success involved. He has shown you, O man, what is good, verse 8, and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly, and to treat people honestly and justly, to love mercy, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with God, to have a knowledge of God, to tremble at God's word. This is what God says is the foundation, you might say, of the keys to success. Let's look at just a couple of other passages in the New Testament. We are a New Covenant church, too. We do use the New Testament. We go to Romans chapter 8, excuse me, Romans chapter 12. And Romans 12 is kind of a thumbnail description of what Christianity is all about and what, how real Christians should function. And if you might contrast this in your mind with uh, the title of Donald Trump's book, uh, this is a very different approach. In verse 16 of Romans 12, it says, Be of the same mind one uh, towards one another. In other words, be on the same wavelength. You know, learn to work together. Be of the same mind uh, toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things. I was looking at, up some different translations of this verse this past week, and it says, don't seek out the, whole, the high rollers. <laughs> don't try and, 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 and snuggle up to and get close to you know, the important people. Yeah, don't, be, don't be doing that and trying to build uh, your, uh, you know, pay, pave your way to better things. Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Another translation said, associate with ordinary people. You know, be down to earth. Be real. Don't walk around with your nose up in the air. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Don't overestimate your own opinion. Well, I know what the church teaches, but here's what I think. God says, don't do that. Don't do that. This is one of the keys to success. Philippians chapter 2. We don't normally look at some of these verses as keys to success, but this is what God is looking for in us as Christians. Philippians chapter 2. Again, you might want to look up some different uh, 
translations of these verses. But in verse 5 of Philippians 2, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. In other words, develop the mind of Christ. Think about how Jesus Christ would approach things and then do the same thing. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. If you look in your margin, some of the Bibles say he did not consider being equal with God something to be held on to. In other words, (laughs) I'm going to tell my dad. He's going to straighten things out. For I'm the son of God. You need to recognize that. It wasn't something he held on to. Read the next verse. And being found in the... uh, But he made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, because he was willing to give up his glorified state, because he was willing to serve and do what he was asked to do as part of the plan of God. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and on earth and those under the earth. These are keys to success that we find in the scriptures. In terms of Donald Trump's approach to success, the world's approach to success, bigger homes, bigger cars, more of this, more of that, Paul advised the church in Corinth, and Corinth was a big city, a lot of things happening there. Uh, In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, this was Paul's advice to the church in Corinth relative to the world's criteria of success and a lot of other things. He says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. In other words, come out of the world, be different. Think differently, do it differently, develop a different set of values. This is what Jesus Christ was talking about back in Matthew chapter 17. I realize we're kind of skimming through these Scriptures quickly, but I just want to lay a foundation. Jesus prophesied that John the Baptist and one coming in the spirit and power of John the Baptist would be focusing on something. In Matthew 17 and verse 11, it says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah is truly coming and he will restore all things. He's going to be focused on recapturing true values. We have stressed this in the church over the years. Our mission, part of our mission, is to recapture true values, to restore an understanding of the truth, to restore an understanding of what true success is all about, what God's way of life is all about, and how that contrasts with the world. In terms of criteria for success, how should we come out of this world when it comes to thinking about success? What do we have to leave behind? Is it wrong to think about success in monetary terms? You know, the world does that. Bigger homes, bigger cars, bigger this, bigger that. Is that totally wrong? Does the Bible reveal anything about money and wealth in the life of Christians? Should we just 
not pay any attention to money or things like that. I want to talk about keys to financial success today in the sense of uh, what we've been talking about. The world has a certain approach. Get out there, cutthroat this and get this and get that and stack up all this stuff. God has a very different approach. We look first of all at some general principles, how God views wealth, how he views money and the use of it. In in Ecclesiastes, we won't turn there, but you should be familiar with the scripture. In Ecclesiastes 9.10, it says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Sermonette was talking about diligence. You know, working hard. Andrew Carnegie did that. Took a very low-paying job, but he worked up through the various companies he worked with. And he worked hard. He got there early, went home late. He worked hard. And people that work hard build a reputation as hard workers, as productive workers. You know, if we kind of loaf around and we don't do much and we do this and do that and we're always looking out the window and you know, reading the newspaper at our desk. I went to uh, the uh, it was a Senate chamber, the representative chamber of the state of Mississippi a, number, a long time ago because I just wanted to see how things worked. And I walked in. And I was, I was, these were our leg, the state legislators. Sitting there with their feet up on a desk reading a paper, a guy's up there giving a speech, and other people were walking around talking. It was incredible. Uh, but these were our legislators serving us. They were. <laughs> if I worked like that, it would be. I wouldn't work, period. <laughs> but Ecclesiastes says that uh, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Sometimes we get involved with things that we probably shouldn't get involved with, but we do it with all of our might. We need to think about what we're getting involved with and then do it with all our might. We need to exercise vision. There's another proverb that says in Proverbs 4, maybe we should turn to that one, Proverbs 4, verses 25 and 26. And Again, these are keys to success, but they also relate to financial success. Proverbs chapter 4. Verses 25 and 26 says, Let your eyes look straight ahead. In other words, focus on a goal. And your eyelids uh, look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Think about where it is that you want to go. Is it worthwhile to go there? And then do it with all your might. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Remove your foot from evil. And do whatever you do with all of your might. And ask God for guidance in these things. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. For those of you that have CBs, this 10-4 was a a signature. It's interesting. The the proverb is also a signature proverb. Proverbs 10 and verse 4. Several proverbs dealing with diligence. It says, He who deals with a slack hand... You're just kind of nonchalant and really doesn't matter much. Becomes poor. When are you going to work? Well, when I get there. When are you coming home? When I feel like it. (laughs) You know, I was talking with an older gentleman up in Massachusetts years ago. He was a foreman. And he worked in a uh, building buildings. 
He tried to retire three or four times. His company kept calling him back to work. He said, we can't get anybody that will work. Would you please come out of retirement and come back to work? He said, guys would call in on uh, usually Thursday afternoon. I'm not going to be in tomorrow. I'm not feeling good. So they were going Friday. They were going Saturday and Sunday. They'd call in Monday morning and say, I'm, I'm sick. I won't be back probably until at least Tuesday. So they'd stumble in on Tuesday, work Wednesday, call in Thursday again. Well, I'm not feeling very good. <laughs> His company wouldn't let him retire because he was an extremely productive person and he could get work out of other people. Uh, he was just a hard-working individual. <clears throat> But it mentions here, he who deals with a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes one rich. God is not against wealth. He's not against you gaining financial resources. But there's a way that produces those things. And some people say, well, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, that'll get you through certain doors. But if you don't produce, you're not going to stay there. You can get in, but you're not going to stay unless you have certain productive habits. He who gathers in the summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps in the harvest is a son that causes shame. It's Proverbs 10.4. We go to Proverbs 12, verse 24. <clears throat> Proverbs 12 and verse 24. <clears throat> the hand of the diligent will rule, but you appoint people to responsible jobs when you realize they're diligent. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slothful will be put to forced labor. Somebody will have to show them and tell them what to do. Then Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard desires and has nothing. We've got all these big dreams. But nothing ever comes from the dreams. The soul of the sluggard desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. There was a hard-working person that is responsible and carries responsibility. Acts chapter 20, and I just wonder how much this may have gotten into the conscience of uh, Andrew Carnegie, because he grew up in a, an era whenever people talked about these things. Acts chapter 20, verses 33 through 35. Paul is actually speaking with the elders in the church of Ephesus, the leaders of the church of Ephesus. He's the one, or they're the ones that Paul is talking to in this discussion. In verse 33, Paul says, I've coveted no one else's silver or gold or apparel. I didn't have any jealousy. I didn't have any desire to get somebody else's things. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided my necessities. Paul actually worked when he didn't really have to, but he did to set an example. These hands have provided my necessities and for those who are were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this, you're working with my hands, that you must support the weak and remember the words that the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And sometimes we want bigger jobs because they're more perks. But that's the wrong motive. God wants us to focus on, on giving, not getting. So the Bible is not against receiving, but it is for getting. Excuse me, it's for giving. <laughs> I forget. <laughs> it's for giving. 
Another guideline in Psalm 41, just to show what God's perspectives are. This is what God is looking for us to develop, this, this perspective, this outlook on life. Psalm 41, verses 1 through 3, said, Blessed is he who considers the poor, which is what Andrew Carnegie did after he'd made millions. Blessed is he who considers the poor, those that have needs. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. In other words, God will deliver you if your perspective is along his lines. The Lord will deliver him in times of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. And we appear to be heading into a period of time. Of uh, Some people have described it as a coming perfect storm where the dollar is declining, America's debt is increasing, world resources are becoming scarcer, prices are going up, the next several years could be very challenging for people all around the world, including right here. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. He will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness, and he will sustain him on his sick bed. But in verse 1 it says, Blessed is he who considers the poor, the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. This is one of the keys to success. Finally, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, another general principle to keep in mind when it comes to you know, looking for financial success, and success in life for that, part, for that matter. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. says, Honor the Lord with your possessions. You know, how do we honor God with our possessions? By letting him use it, giving those, sharing those possessions. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. You know, one of the habits I developed a long time ago was when I get paid the first check that I write is to the church because I want to honor God with that we can show God what is most important well I'll write a check if there's anything left when I get done paying my bills well that doesn't take faith it takes faith the other way around you give God what's first to honor him and then let him help work out how the other things will be done but this is the, the scriptural admonition. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. Why do we do that? Next verse. Next verse. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Why? If you've honored God first. It's a promise. It's a promise, and God wants us to see that these promises actually work. But this is nothing new. Solomon was merely repeating what had been said earlier. If we go back to Exodus chapter Exodus chapter 22, <clears throat> these were some of the instructions that Moses gave to the Israelites. Again, these are keys to success, Keys to financial success and keys to success in life. If we learn to use these keys. Exodus 22, 
Verse 29 says, You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices, the firstborn of your sons. You shall give to me. See, what we give to God comes first. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. But it says you will not delay, you should not delay to offer the first of these things. In other words, to show God what's important, to show him your priorities. Someone who apparently didn't do this, if we go back to uh, Genesis chapter 3, the story with Cain and Abel. Cain had a certain approach to life. It was basically to get and to take and to get what he wanted when he wanted it. Abel had a different approach. Verse 3, it says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering. Notice, an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought not an offering, but the firstlings of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. He did not respect Cain and his offering. It's not because uh, Abel's offering was from the flocks and uh, Cain's offering was from the ground. That doesn't appear to be what the issue was. The issue appears to have something to do with the offering that was offered, whether it was, well, I'm going to save this, 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 this choice piece of, uh, you know, bundle of fruit over here for me and you know, this brew stuff. I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to use it, so I'll give it to God. I remember I was in, uh, uh, conducting a women's club a number of years ago, and uh, I overheard two ladies. They were bringing refreshments for the club. And this one lady told the other one, said, well, my neighbor gave me this cake. It's all full of white sugar. I didn't want to eat it, so I brought it here to club to feed the other ladies. <laughs> you know, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the problem was, but you can read between the lines that Cain was an exploiter. He was selfish. He promoted a way of Cain, which was exactly opposite of God's way. It was a way of getting, not giving. Abel had a different approach. But the point I want to emphasize here is God had respect to Abel's offering because it was of the first fruits. It was a priority there. Apparently it wasn't there with Cain's offering. These are some general principles about money, but they're part of a biblical system designed to foster an attitude of honoring God, of giving and sharing and caring about others. That system is a system of tithing that is outlined in the scriptures. And why is this important to us today? Because if you think about it, Jesus Christ is going to return and set up a government on this earth. There is going to be a restoration of all things. We function in a capitalistic system today, which encourages the, uh, the amalgamation, the gathering of wealth. We talk about the bottom line today. If we don't make a profit, we don't do it. If we can make a big profit, we go for it. You know, when you read about capitalism a little bit, again, we enjoy the benefits of it. But when you read especially what Europeans write about capitalism, 
They talk about a rapacious system, uh, a predatory system. Uh, you know, we just got to get out there and make money as opposed to their socialist systems that take care of everybody. Uh, and again, I'm not advoca advocating socialism or anything like that. Again, it's not wrong to, to make a profit, but if we you know, run people into the ground and do things like that, that is not the caring, that is not the loving way to deal with people. But there are different views of the systems that we operate on today. Jesus Christ is going to come back and establish an economic system. And we are going to be the ones to teach the world how to do those things. So it's important that we understand God's economic system and the, 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 the principles that God gives us to succeed and enjoy success in that area. So we need to understand how this operates. We need to review it from time to time. You know, when I was teaching health education classes, they mentioned that major subjects should be covered at least once a year. And so it's good that we cover some of these things every so often. One of the problems that we are going to have coming down the road is because we have done certain things that God is very concerned about because we've done things the wrong way. If we go to Malachi chapter 3, again, you should be familiar with the scriptures. This is a prophecy <clears throat> that is going to be fulfilled. It has been fulfilled in the past in certain ways. <clears throat> In Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, actually let's go to verse 8, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, how did we do it? And God says, in tithes and offerings. And some people are being told today, well, that's all under the old covenant. These things don't need to be done anymore. That's all been done away with. You just give out of the generosity of your heart. And if that's five cents, that's what you can give. That's, that's not God's approach. He set up a system. In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse. And it's going to be sobering to see what happens to the U.S. economy in the years just ahead. You know, they have just uh, had the head of our Federal Reserve come before the Inter International Monetary Fund and say, we want to monitor your books we want to do an x-ray of the American financial system. This has never happened before. This has never happened before. You know, the most powerful nation on the earth is being called on the carpet to answer questions about their financial system. Things are changing in the world. Things are going to get very challenging. God says... You are cursed with a curse if the Chinese call in the debts that we owe them. They will pull the rug from under our financial system. You are cursed with a curse. We haven't seen that just yet, but it appears to be building. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Prove me now in this. Put it to the test, God says, and see if things don't turn around when you begin doing these things. So God says, you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. Some people say, well, I don't know whether I can afford to do that or not. Let's look at a couple of interesting scriptures. Go to Second Chronicles chapter 16. 
Second Chronicles chapter 16. You might want to put a big circle around this in your Bible. Because God does not change. Now we're taking this a little bit out of context, but the principle is certainly accurate. Verse 9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. The eyes of God search the world to show himself strong on behalf of those who trust him, who walk humbly in his footsteps, who want to do things God's way. I was talking with a gentleman recently who went into sales. And he was doing extremely well. Extremely well with a big company. And he said, a guy came up to him and said, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? And the answer was, uh, well, I may or may not answer it because it's personal. (laughs) But the question was, do you tithe? And he looked at him and he said, yes. And the guy said, I thought so. Nobody is this good. Nobody is this good. There was a person who saw what was happening. And he figured this guy must have God on his side because things just don't happen this way out of the blue. See, this is the kind of example God wants people to see. That he does answer prayers. His eyes do search the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those who trust him. Psalm 33, verse 18. A number of things say pretty much the same thing. God repeats things that are important so that we don't miss the point. Psalm 33, verse 18. It says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. And we may be heading towards those times. Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Psalm 119, verse 172 says, All thy commandments are righteousness. So if we're doing the commandments of God, following his instructions, it says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off remembrance of them from the earth. There are consequences from not doing things God's way. So these are instructions that we find in the Bible. We just read that God says that uh, we're under a curse today because we have robbed God in tithes and offerings. Let's go back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. We've referred to these chapters as the blessings and cursings chapter. I think probably a better name would be blessings or cursings chapter. Because if we follow the God's instructions, there will be blessings. If we don't, there will be problems. But notice just some specific prophecies here. In Deuteronomy 28, first couple of verses, it will come to pass, verse 1, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. You're going to be blessed as nations. 
if you obey my commandments and follow my instructions, if you walk humbly before your God, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Would you like to have blessings overtake you? I'm trying to get away from them, but they keep catching me. (laughs) These blessings. (laughs) These blessings will overtake you. They'll catch up to you. Because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed will you be in the city, and so on. Uh, Verse 10, Then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they'll be afraid of you. Down in the latter part of verse 12, You shall lend to many nations, but shall not borrow. At a point in time in the past, America was the biggest lender nation in the world. Today we are the biggest debtor nation in the world. These things work. They come to pass. They are coming to pass. God said if you obey, you're going to lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. Verse 15, it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes. All these curses will come upon you. We'll go to verse 29. You shall grope at noonday in the blind, as, as a blind man gropes in the darkness. You shall not prosper. You will not prosper in all your ways. You will be oppressed and plundered continually. And no one will save you. That is, if you don't follow God's instructions. Finally, down in verses 43, 44, and 45, again a prophecy. The alien or foreign nations, the alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you. You shall become down, you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you. And we are borrowing today from nations who are basically our adversaries and potential adversaries and enemies. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you will be the tail. This is what's coming. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments and statutes which he commanded you. The commandments of God have not been done away with. What we're going to see in the years just ahead, the nations that have turned their back on God, that have bought into some of these Protestant ideas, oh, God loves you, you know, and you don't have to do anything. You just have to love the Lord. They're going to come up short. They're going to come up short. Jesus Christ is coming back to establish a government. The laws of God are going to go out from Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. And he's going to use us to teach the world, which kind of blows our mind today. Us, this little group of people. God has a sense of humor. He's going to use us <laughs> to teach the world. Now, he used 12 apostles, fishermen, tax collectors, kind of the scum of the earth in one sense. They said, who are these guys? But they were with Jesus. There's something different about these guys. If we can see what's coming, we can prepare to succeed and let God use us if we can get on the bandwagon properly. Blessings and cursings. God says these things are actually going to happen. Let's look next at the tithing system just to notice 
how it's revealed in the Scriptures. And you've got to put two and two together. You read a little bit here and you read a little bit there. It doesn't say, okay, in this chapter I'm going to give you all the instructions about tithing. We've got to put it together piece by piece. In Genesis 14, verse 20, let's run through these kind of in a sequence. Genesis 14, verse 20, Abraham's grandson Lot was carried captive. Abraham was a wealthy man. He armed 300, actually 318, I think it was, of his private servants and went after Lot. You know, that's more people than we have in this building. About 40 or 50 people that work here. If Dr. Meredith would get upset about something, he could arm his, his little army here. 45 people would go charging out the door. <laughs> Probably wouldn't impress too many people. Who's this rabble coming up here? <laughs> Abraham armed 300, over 300, and they went out and they got Lot back, along with uh, some spoils. But in Genesis 14, verse 20, uh, they came back, met uh, Melchizedek, and says he gave him a tithe, or a tenth, of all. So here was Abraham giving a tithe, or giving a tenth, to Melchizedek. Here's the principle. If we go to uh, Genesis chapter 28, Genesis 28, And again, this is before the giving of the law to Moses. So the principle was understood. In Genesis 28, <clears throat> verse 22, God gave uh, Jacob this vision of uh, some exciting things in the future. As a memorial of that vision, verse 22, this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you or a tithe to you. So again, the principle was understood before the giving of the law to Moses. If we go to Leviticus chapter 27. Leviticus chapter 27. Why do we give a tithe to God? It's his. It's his, but he gives us the prerogative of giving it back to him. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It's holy. It is holy to God. You know, so we don't play games with something that's holy. But God gives us the choice to make to either give it back to him or to, well, God won't notice. I'll, I'll put my hand over the check and he won't, he won't be able to tell what I'm writing. No, God knows. But he wants to see our attitude. He wants to see our attitude. All the tithes of the land and the seed of the land and so on is the Lord's and it's holy to him. Now notice this little caveat here. If a person wants to redeem any of his tithes, well, I, I'm short of money. I, maybe I need to borrow some from it. He shall add one-fifth to it. In other words, a 20% carrying charge, which is probably not a good decision. <laughs> 
when I first read that, I thought, oh, well, I can borrow from my tithe. But then I got to thinking, we're really not supposed to do that. That's why there's a 20% carrying charge on this. It's to discourage doing those things. But it is yours, and you can decide what to do with it. But God gets to see what you're deciding. We have a chance to build character on these things. Now, the tithing system per se, let's go to Numbers chapter 18. Again, I'm preaching to the choir here, I think. We all know these things. But my question would be, can you teach it? Can you explain it to others? When I was in graduate school studying for a degree, I learned how to study. But I learned how to study even better when I began teaching. Because I couldn't just recognize the right answer. I had to be able to explain what the answer was and explain the reasoning behind it. We've been called to become kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God to explain to the world how to do these things and why we need to do it. So Numbers chapter 18, it describes one of the ties. Numbers 18, beginning in verse 20 and 21. Now, this is instructions here to the priests. Verse 21, it says, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. The Levites did not get a geographical, in that sense, portion of the promised land. They had a job to do. But God provided for their sustenance for the job that they were going to do. In the kingdom of God, the Levites are going to be uh, going to be the teachers, the civil servants. Uh, I mean, this is where their funds are going to come from. It does not look like there's going to be a tax in the kingdom of God if you've got this type of economic system behind it. The tithes are for the support of the Levites. They were the teachers. They were the civil servants. They took care of the tabernacle. They were, had quite a few responsibilities. Down in verse 26, Thus speak to the Levites when you take the, uh, from the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you from them as your inheritance. Then you shall offer up a heath offering to the Lord a tenth of the tithe. So even the Levites had to tithe. You might say a first tithe. But the Bible explains here is a tithe that's supposed to go to the Levites. They are to carry on the work of God. In verse, uh, I think verse 31, it mentions they were to live of these tithes. You may eat in any place in your households, for it is your reward for the work in the temple of meeting. If we go to Deuteronomy chapter 14, there's another tithe that's talked about. Again, every once in a while you see stuff in the press that uh, you know the churches of God, they just are so greedy, they got three ties for people, and they don't understand the system that they're criticizing. In Deuteronomy 14, <clears throat> beginning in verse 22, there is a second tithe, but this is yours. This is for you and for me to keep. Verse 22, you shall surely tithe all the increase of your grain, in other words, your increases, your salaries, whatever, that the field produces year by year, and you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses. 
Now, if you were eating the Levite's portion, they wouldn't like that. <laughs> but this is a tithe that you eat. It's for you to keep the feast and to keep the holy days. I remember talking with a, a young family. Whenever we first got married, we were living in a graduate ghetto in Pasadena. It's where only students could afford to live. And... Uh, <clears throat> None of us were making much money that were living there, but it wasn't all church people that were living there. There were other people. And it's one family that had a little girl about the same age as our oldest son, Scott. Uh, uh, I think I asked him one time, so we're going to be gone for a week or two. Uh, would you be able to watch our place? He said, where are you going? I thought for a minute. I said, we're going to Europe for two weeks. He just looked at me. He said, how can you go to Europe? You're not making that much money. I said, as part of our religion, we have to go. (laughs) He just stood there scratching his head. It didn't make sense to him. He didn't know that we kept a tenth of our income, and we had it to go. I think we paid uh, $250 for airfare tickets, uh, round trip at that time. We bought a Eurorail pass for two weeks for $125. We made the trip on... uh, probably less than $2,000, probably considerably less than $2,000 at that time. But it was kind of fun just telling this guy, as part of our religion, we have to go. It didn't make any sense because he was a struggling musician who was playing commercials, uh, music for commercials over in Hollywood. So he wasn't making much money. And we told him we're going to Europe for two weeks. It was kind of like it blew his mind. He couldn't fathom that. But see, the critics don't understand. The second tithe is, is for you. It's for us. God said, I want you to keep it and enjoy the feast. What a blessing. And it's pursuing you. <laughs> God says, this is what I want you to do. Verse 26, you shall spend that money for whatsoever your heart desires. For oxen, sheep, and it's basically to eat, not fattening up your herds here. Uh, I need a new ox in my garage. So I'm going to get me a Corvette for the feast or something like that, which I know a person did at one point in time. (laughs) You know, if we think back to the general principles for the use of the tithe, God says those that remember the poor are going to be blessed. It's more blessed to give than to receive and kind of plug that into our thinking as we read this verse, as opposed to, I want the biggest steak I can have. I invited a guy to church one time as a vegetarian, and I heard he went to the feast and had a caveman cut steak, about 24 ounces of something, and then I heard he needed an anointed cloth. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we we jump from one ditch to the other, God wants us to be balanced, kind of right in the center of things. So as we read this verse, we shall spend it for whatever our hearts desires. What could you do with that that would benefit some other people in your family? Maybe some of your friends? Maybe someone who doesn't have enough for the feast? These are decisions that we get to make to use that second time. We can spend it all on ourselves, or we can kind of share it and spread it around to make the feast enjoyable for others. Spend it for whatever your heart desires. For whatever your heart desires, you shall eat it before the Lord and rejoice. God wants us to rejoice. 
So this is basically a, a short description of a second tithe. And the second tithe is basically in, to be used to go to, stay at, and come back home from the feast. And generally you have enough to maybe make a little trip on the side here or there. I mean, this is just a wise use of things. I remember whenever we went to the feast the first couple of years, our kids were little. You know, we didn't have that much disposable income to work with, so we bought them a set of clothes that were a size or two big, too big for them. And uh, we would try and make those clothes last then. Uh, I think one year we made them last till the next feast. Or they used it uh, to where to go to school after a couple weeks, a couple months after the feast. But we tried to get as much out of that expenditure as we could because we didn't have that much. But that is the second tithe to be used to go to, stay at, and come back from the feast or the holy days. I remember one year we spent a big chunk uh, on the spring holy days. And then we wound up at McDonald's for the last half of the feast because we didn't have enough to get through the feast because we didn't use it wisely. See, God gives us opportunities to plan and prepare and to uh, to utilize resources. <clears throat> okay, verse 28, it talks about another tithe. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion or no inheritance, <clears throat> in other words, these are the people that are to use that third tithe, the stranger, you know, someone that maybe is coming to the feast for the first time or comes into the church, doesn't understand about a tithing system, they can be helped out, someone that has needs, orphans, the fatherless or the widow within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand, which you do. So this is really God's system for providing a first tithe for doing the work of God a second tithe for going to the feast, and a third tithe to take care of those that are needy. And as the Bible says, they will always be with us. There will always be people with needs, and God has a system for doing this. You, know, you just think about it in the American system today, our tax bracket is, uh, <clears throat> I'm not in a real big one, but uh, you know, generally income taxes are what in this country, about 17 18%, something like that. You know, God's system is 10%, and then every third year you'll have another 10%. So on the overall, uh, God's system is going to be much better. <clears throat> it's going to be interesting to see how people respond to get sucked into the EU, where they have not been able to balance their budget in 10 years. The accountants would not sign off on the budgets for the EU because there's too much graft, too much corruption. You know, people that become members of the European Parliament, their salary goes up anywhere from five to ten times. This is where the money goes over there. You know, they're buying loyalties for people to get into the European Parliament. And I think there's going to be a blow-up coming one of these days. <clears throat> so these are the three ties that are talked about. I didn't bring it today, but if you go into the Apocrypha, uh, the book of Tobit, this was written in the, what, the first or second century, and as you have a historical corroboration of the way we carry the tithing system today. It was written uh, two or 300 A.D., but here's a description of a person who was an orphan and said that uh, uh, there were three tithes, just like we do today. I know some people have read through Halley's handbook, and I think Halley makes the comment that, well, some people think there was three tithes and some people think there was one. And then they say, well, we think there's only one. 
based on what Halley said in his handbook. But that's not what the Bible says, and that's not what historical sources show. <clears throat> so what we're doing is not something that we've made up. Uh, it actually works. Let's look at the New Testament quickly. Some people say, well, you know, there's no evidence in the New Testament that we should be tithing. Well, depends how you read it. Depends if you read it. <laughs> because if you read it, it is there. Notice in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Christ is talking to the Pharisees, and I realize this is before Christ died, so some people feel that you know when he died, everything was nailed to the cross, so this is all done. But notice what he said. Matthew 23, verse 23. <clears throat> He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you pay tithe on mint and anise and cumin. And if you look these things up or actually look at them physically, they're tiny little things. So you're tithing on these tiny little things and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Where do we read about justice and mercy? <laughs> these are the things that God is concerned about. He says, these you ought to have done. In other words, you should have been tithing without leaving the others undone. So Christ is telling people in his, uh, his, his time they should be tithing. But again, some people think, well, now that's all done away with. But if we go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> notice what Paul is saying again to the church in Corinth. We usually read this at the Days of Unleavened Bread, Passover, and so on. Paul says in verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. But Paul is telling the church, we need to keep the feast. Let us keep the feast. If you're going to keep the feast, what are you going to keep it on? Unless you're saving your second tithe. Paul mentions in Acts chapter 18. Now this was after the crucifixion. And after the resurrection, after all these things supposedly were nailed to a cross. Acts chapter 18. In verse 21, it says, But uh, Paul took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So Paul is saying, Look, I've got to be in Jerusalem for the feast that's coming. How did he pay for his ticket on the boat? If he was going there for the feast, he could have used a second tithe. You know, if, you just, if we just read and let the Bible explain itself, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, what is this talking about? If there is no tithing system, then this doesn't make sense. If there's a tithing system, then it does make sense. 1 Timothy chapter 4 is talking about support for widows and orphans, the very thing that the third tithe is supposed to take care of. Verse 9, it says, Do not let a widow under 60 years of age be taken into the number or enrolled in the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported of, a good worker, and so on. And it's talking about providing for a widow the church providing for a widow. And those funds come from the third tithe. So again, this verse doesn't make any sense unless there is a third tithe that the church was using to distribute 
to widows and orphans, which is what we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let's go to a final scripture in uh, Hebrews chapter 7, where Paul is talking about a change in the law. Some commentaries and writings say that this was a change in the priesthood, which it was, but notice the examples that Paul is using before he gets to uh, verse 11 where he mentions a change in the priesthood. If you go from verse 1 to about verse 9, Paul uses example after example. Abraham gave a tenth part, verse 2, of all being translated the king of righteousness basically to Melchizedek. Uh, verse 4 now consider how great this man was to whom the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils verse 5 indeed those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people so Paul uses all these examples and then he makes a statement down here in verse 12 for the priesthood being changed of necessity there's also a change in the law what Paul is saying is the tithes should not be paid uh, under the New Covenant or under the in the New Testament to the Levites anymore, it should go to the church so that they could then support the widows and so on. So these are examples in the New Testament that have not really changed. What's also interesting, in Gibbon's book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, in chapter 15, Gibbon makes a comment about how the early church viewed the tithing system. Now, the page number is going to differ depending on what edition of uh, Gibbon you use. But uh, in chapter 15, this particular section, but it was diligently inculcated that in the article of tithes, now this is in the early church, the Mosaic law was still of divine obligation and that since the Jews under a less perfect discipline had been commanded to pay a tenth part of all of that they possessed, it would become the disciples of Christ to distinguish themselves by a superior degree of liberality. But it says it was diligently inculcated that the article of ties, in the article of ties, the Mosaic law was still under divine obligation. This is what the early church believed. If we would, we're getting close on time, if we would just look at a couple of scriptures, let me give them to you. You can look them up later. Again, general principles related to giving. In 1 Corinthians 2.12, it mentions God gives freely. Now, it's talking about his Holy Spirit. But God freely gives of what he has to give. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, it's talking about taking up an offering. And Paul says, give as you are able. If God has blessed you, then give as you are able. It's not talking about something you don't have. It says, don't give grudgingly. Well, the church just wants money. And i got to give it. God sees that attitude. We don't want to give grudgingly or like we're compelled to do something. We want to do it to show God you know, we want to give him what's his. Romans 12, verse 8, is talking about different gifts that people have. and says if you've been given, then give liberally. In other words, if this is what you have to give, if God has really blessed you, then it says give liberally of those things. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 talks about not trusting in riches. Well, I can be really confident as long as I've got money in the bank. <laughs> but if I don't have any money in the bank, I can't be very confident. Well, that's where faith comes in. We can be faithful. We can be confident in God. 
Another scripture that's interesting to contemplate in this regard is Luke 12, verse 48, where it says, To whom much is given, much will be required. To whom much is given, much will be required. You know, we have been blessed incredibly in this country. We have been given an incredible amount of things. We have been blessed in the church to understand the truth of God. You know, we are very appreciative. Our budget is running, or actually the income is running around 8%. We've been blessed as an organization. We're a small little group. We've been given a big commission of preaching the gospel of the coming kingdom of God to the entire world. We're a little flock, but God has blessed us, and we need to pray that God would continue to do that so that we can fulfill our mission. Brethren, God has given us a flight plan. He's revealed to us keys to success financially and keys to success overall. He wants to see us put these things into practice to become convinced that they work so that he can then use us to teach the world the way to peace, the way to abundance. You know, if we follow the flight plan that God has given us, we're not going to have to worry about crashing and burning because God has given us the keys to success that he wants to see us use, become convinced that they work, so that we can share this with others.